This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we look at education in Ukraine during times of war. With me is Anatoly Alexienko, who was born and raised in Soviet Ukraine and is a leading scholar on post-Soviet higher education system. The Russian invasion started with annexation of Crimea and occupation of Donbass in 2014. Over the following eight years, there were more than 750 schools damaged or forced to closure, as was reported by the UN Organization for Coordination of Humanitarian Assistance. So parents uh, were afraid to send their children to schools, for obvious reasons, because of continued shelling in the east of Ukraine. Anatoly Alexienko is an associate professor in the Faculty of Education at the University of Hong Kong. He is also the director of the Comparative Education Research Center. His latest article is Ukrainian Academics in the Times of War, which was published in Academic Praxis. We spoke on April 22nd. Anatoly Oleksienko, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you very much. Well, hello, everyone, and thank you for inviting me. So can I ask you where you were when you learned about the Russian invasion, the recent Russian invasion into Ukraine? I was in Hong Kong teaching in the AMED program, and I received this news about the invasion. My brother, his family, cousins, my elder son were all in Ukraine at that time. So it was horrible news. And uh, frankly speaking, over the last two months, I was not able to kind of comprehend what was going on there. Just under that pressure of calling my family, raising funds, trying to continue teaching my classes in Hong Kong. Also uh, trying to keep in touch with uh, my friends, colleagues who were teaching uh, in Ukraine and living through the, that horrible time. So it was very painful. I'm so sorry. I mean, it just sounds so tragic. Is your family safe right now? Thank you for asking. They are safe at the moment. My brother lived in Irpin next to Bucha. So, and he left one week before the genocidal actions began in the city. So he fled uh, to the west as part of, uh, as part of the population uh, evacuation plan was implemented by the mayor of Irpin. And uh, he's in shock, still in shock, but it's saying he's uh, safe and can contributes to civilian work in the west of Ukraine. I mean, what an absolute nightmare. I mean, you you have such obviously strong connections to Ukraine. You grew up in Soviet Ukraine, if I'm not mistaken. You've worked and been educated in Ukraine. So you, you sort of know the country, the higher education system, the schooling system extremely well. And so this is why I actually wanted to bring you on the show to just to get an a sense of what's happening in Ukraine in terms of education, right? Like what has actually happened to schools and universities since this war has started? The Russian invasion started with annexation of Crimea and occupation of Donbass in 2014. Over the following eight years, there were more than 750 schools damaged or forced to closure, as was reported by the UN Organization for Coordination of Humanitarian Assistance. So parents uh, were afraid to send their children to schools, for obvious reasons, because of continued shelling in the east of Ukraine. So that feeling of uncertainty and fear prevailed primarily in Donbass and the south southeastern parts of Ukraine. But on February 24 of this year, the Russian invasion expanded, and uh, Putin claimed it was Ukraine's fault in disrupting the Minsk agreement. He denied 
destroyed Ukraine's legitimacy and agency. And in the end, he concluded it was important to obliterate the Nazis, as he was saying, to people who resisted his narrative of the Great Russia, of the imperial narrative. So schools and, and universities in Ukraine have tragically and unavoidably become a inseparable part of the infrastructure that was bombed and shelled by the Russian army. Many campuses were ruined, turned into rubble, practically. The, you know, the destruction is quite immense. Do you know if there's teaching that's still going on? I mean, are all students out of school and out of university, or are there some places that are still operating, trying to have some sense of normalcy? Many schools were closed temporarily. Children and were fleeing with their parents going west, crossing borders. You probably heard stories about uh, how massive the refugee flow was. But in the eastern parts of, of Ukraine, many of the schools were ruined, right? So, in fact, uh, children didn't have opportunity to study. Many spent long time in bomb shelters underground, so they had no access to online resources. In other parts of Ukraine, schools reorganized themselves to become shelters for refugees. They organized their campuses for uh, to accommodate people coming from the East. Most of teaching in Ukraine is being done online now. And the internet's still working? The internet uh, is not always a, a, a accessible. You might have heard that Elon Musk has provided Starlink for Ukraine, so gave access to the internet in many cities and villages. It was a very generous act of donation. Is satellite internet. Uh, which uh, enabled access to many schools uh, and, and students. Uh, and in that regard, I guess that improved the situation. But you also, we also have to remember that COVID actually spearheaded a lot of that online education before. So COVID played a role in terms of reorienting the educational infrastructure for online learning. The war has actually improved it further in terms of making at a new normal, but a new way, right? Just for students and teachers to really work with online resources. But in the Ukrainian situation, many teachers are still in Ukraine while their students are abroad because they were, you know, they, uh, they crossed the border. They might be living in Poland or Germany, but teachers continue to teach from Ukraine. And students sometimes hear these air raid alerts on Zoom because teachers have to, when they hear the air raid alert, Teachers have to leave the room and go to a bomb shelter. So you can imagine how, how these students comprehend the idea of teaching and learning. Many students cannot switch to another language while they're abroad uh, because they don't have skills in, let us say, in German or, or Dutch or even English. is not always an easy language to use in, in schooling. So besides, many parents still believe that the war will end soon, so they don't want to settle in other countries. They have anticipation of going back home soon, so they can they prefer to use Ukrainian as a language of education. So that the online resources provide for that type of uh, support to many of these school children as well as teachers. It's quite amazing the resilience that was built into the system because of the previous emergency of COVID. I mean, that's quite a telling story. Do we know about... Uh, Ukraine, from my understanding, had a lot of international students studying in universities in particular. Have most of those students left the country or are they fleeing to you know neighboring countries or staying in Ukraine? Do we know anything about them? 
We had a webinar yesterday with my colleague from Kharkiv University, and uh, she was asked the same question. Uh, their university in Kharkiv had the largest population of international students. So she was saying that there were students who didn't want to leave and stayed in the city despite the aggression and shelling. One Syrian student said, you know, he already lived through that horror before and uh, he didn't want to leave. They finally urged him to rethink his attitude or approach to where to stay. And so he's in Germany now. But uh, the, as you might have seen in the news, there were a lot of reports on problems for international students crossing the border. Many of the students didn't have the same conditions as Ukrainian uh, students, and that was caused primarily by different visa status. Ukrainians had a privilege of visa-free travel in Europe, while many international students didn't have that privilege. So they were discriminated by immigration officers, but there were also ridiculous situations when these massive flows of refugees, 5 million people are reported now to have fled uh, across the borders, were sometimes chaotic and messy and, you know, reports on, on this kind of racist attitude was also expressed, which is disgusting, actually. But uh, in terms of when we, when I tried to kind of clarify those issues, some people said it was such a uh, horrible condition where people were angry, frustrated, and angry at each other, not necessarily at a foreign citizen, but at each other when they had to travel for 15 hours in the train standing. So you stand uh, in the packed car of the train without ability to use a toilet or have food. The trains are stopped because of the bombing and you don't know if the if the train will be bombed or will be shelled. So these trains were stopping for quite some time and people would continue traveling. And then when they arrived to the border, they would still wait for three, four days without knowing whether they would be admitted as a refugee. So international students were a part of that horrible, actually, what it was. Uh, it was uh, this kind of horrible human flow of desperate of desperate asylum seekers. So, and uh, from that point of view, it's, uh, it's frustrating that it happened to international students. Luckily, the Indian government played a great role in accommodating the return of their students to India. They sent humanitarian flights to take students back to India. Look, we also had good stories about universities in Hungary or Bulgaria admitting students uh, to their universities to continue degrees that they already began in Ukraine, so they would be able to continue their studies in Hungary, Bulgaria, Romania. So that was also a positive change of minds over time. I guess the crisis made everyone learn anew in terms of how they respond to this human crisis, regardless of race, belief, gender, or any other nationality, other attributions. Wow. I mean, I'm sure as time goes on, more and more of these stories are going to come out, and they're just so traumatic and horrific. And what people put up with and how they survive is just testament to, I think, us being humans in a way. You brought up Russian aggression from 2014 and how the recent invasion sort of was building on that to some extent. It made me wonder what, historically speaking, what has the connection been between the like Russian universities and Ukrainian universities? I know Soviet Ukraine obviously had a lot of connections, but you know, since independence, what has the interconnections 
looked like between Russia and Ukraine in terms of higher education? Uh, you're right. Connections uh, go back to the times of the Soviet Union. So when I did my research on international student mobility, I noticed that Ukrainian students continued to go to Russia to study even after 2014. The number of Russian students studying in Ukraine declined over the same period of time. Uh, but these data were published by the UNESCO Institute of Statistics, and it is not clear to what extent the data from the occupied Donbass or annexed Crimea became part of those calculations. So can't really say the data are accurate. But if you look into the collaborative research between Russian and Ukrainian scholars, you would notice if you just read the databases of the Web of Science or Scopus, you would say that there were very few papers written together, written in collaboration. Although there were papers in the fields of nuclear physics, for example, which uh, were traditionally, I guess, uh, this continued type of uh, discussion about Chernobyl and recently in Zaporizhia. So you would see that Russian and Ukrainian scholars would collaborate in larger teams, including American scholars, German scholars, and many other scholars. So this has been tendency in sciences in general to have multiple authors involved. But in social sciences in general, I when I looked last time, I just uh, I saw that there were only two or four papers a year during the last five years, maybe primarily in archaeology or anthropology. I remember one paper was on the ancient pottery uh, from the Black Sea region. So the Ukrainian and Russian scholar has probably worked on that for quite a long time, and they continued to publish on the same issues, which were not as political, I suppose, as uh, they might have been in other areas. But in sociology or in other fields, I can't see any papers in internationally influential journals, so the indexed types of journals. It seems to me that in general, you might observe, you may, you may found some collaborative processes, outcomes among elite scientists who are committed to their area of science and continue to do their work on a particular research, and they might still continue relating to each other. But after February 22nd, I'm afraid this type of tendency might cease completely. And what about the Ukrainian students who were studying in Russia? Do we know what happened to them after February 23rd or 24th? In general, U Ukraine had a number of people who spoke Russian, who had uh, family relations in Russia, and who preferred to go and live in Russia. So sending their children to study in Russia, these families, these households, uh, had some idea of living in that part of the world. But in general, what we see as a sea change is increasing number of people going to study west and particularly in Poland there's an increasing number of students going to Poland after 2014. There is no news uh, to answer your question there is no news about students who study in Russia they have most likely assimilated uh, with the Russian population the web already part of the of the Russian culture and the Russian discourse. Because it sort of brings up this issue about, you know, as you're talking about some of these university collaborations, but also this reality that students themselves are quite mobile and build 
ties and relations across borders. And the question is something around to what extent can professors and academics and students who are internationally mobile sort of be used in ways to maybe create peace or be, you know, levers towards peace in some way. And I just wondered, you know, to what extent do you think that might be possible in this particular crisis in Ukraine? It's a very good question. I took part in several webinars with Ukrainian scholars discussing some of the issues, and this question tends to come back. The most surprising discovery of the recent time for me is that the Ukrainian scholars who are in the areas most affected by, by the war, in Mariupol or in Kharkiv, they say no. They don't really want to have any peace building with the Russians. One scholar who is Russian, who was Russian herself, and in the webinar, he, she was trying to speak Ukrainian, and you could hear this Russian accent behind her. And every time she would fail to find the equivalent in Ukrainian, she would take a pause and wait and try to find it and speak Ukrainian instead of switching to Russian. And, uh, and when others in this webinar were asked about peace building or conversation or dialogue with Russians, you know, most of these people coming from the Western Ukraine, which is less, uh, least affected. So they would hesitate, but they would say maybe they should speak, they should speak. But the, the, the scholars in, in the East were immediately saying, they had, had these trembling voices saying, it's impossible, like these Russians are inhumane. You cannot speak to that. So what? where I see the this kind of the consensus is building up at the moment is that, yes, you have to speak to Russians about the uh, Russian genocide. You have to show to them the atrocities and the results of the bombing and uh, discuss how they alienated the Russians in, in Ukraine. So you have to expose to them these these facts these kind of uh, tell them these stories show them the the results of the of uh, what happened in Bucha or Mariupol in uh, mass graves this kind of genocidal type of impact that it had on the population so that's that's pretty much where I can see where this uh, type of peace building emerging at the moment Ukraine needs in general Ukraine needs a decolonial peace so decolonial peace is built on the uh, recognition of asymmetries in power and the legacy and the legacy of discrimination uh, by the imperial forces imperial governments or pro-imperial governments and then building peace is built by that kind of recognition of equality and justice, but uh, where the perpetrators, the discriminators recognize their mistakes before the whole conversation starts. So that's pretty much, I would argue, uh, be a proper position uh, at this point in time. So, But in general, yes, the, the concession should take place. I just made a recently a post on, on Twitter from a scholar in Southeastern Europe telling about how the intellectuals and Germans were taken to Buchenwald after the Second World War and how the Americans took them to the Buchenwald to show the atrocities of uh, the Nazi government. And these people were shocked and fainted. Uh, the intellectuals were not able to believe that their government would treat population, Jewish population and other minorities in, in that way. So that kind of comprehension of, of shock, uh, comprehension of genocide, comprehension of evil, 
that should take place in the Russian population, especially among Russian intellectuals first. It's quite interesting. I mean, some sort of notion of like a truth and reconciliation commission of some sort and, you know, exposing the what happened and opening it up for dialogue and conversation. I mean, to what extent does something like that not only have to be, you know, placed on the shoulders of Ukrainian academics, but are there connections to global academics that could also be part of that movement in a sense and support that that work that's what we are expecting to happen surely in coming months and years we ukrainians are very grateful to all scholars of the world who offered immediate support in various ways donations scholarship uh, hosting students and scholars in their homes so there was a lot of that type of solidarity that emerged over time. But we also saw the references to what about is, right? Like, you know, what? So, what is special about the Ukrainian case? Why should we treat them in a special way? Because what are they? Should they have a better status? I think it's a cynical attitude and morally corrupt approach in terms of how we compare suffering of different people. And we should ask ourselves in the West in terms of what we have learned from the previous genocidal acts. Why didn't we do better, right? And every time something like what we observe today should be a, an opportunity to rethink about previous miscalculations, mistakes by Western intellectuals. Why didn't we do enough when the Syrian crisis happened? Why we didn't continue talking about what happened in Syria? Or maybe even in Georgia, like you, there were so many of these aggressions produced by Russians in on the continent and beyond probably. But, but at the same time, we never had a enough of that commitment to continue the intellectual conversation, critical inquiry in terms of what we have done to prevent the fascist type of development, these types of imperialist types of progressions and so on. So that is pretty much where we need more that type of international dialogue, global solidarity in, against uh, fascist and imperialism in general. And it raises an interesting question about Russia. If we want to have this conversation and we want to make it global and not make it a race to the bottom, but actually a race to the top and sort of you know treat each other better, have these deeper conversations, what surprises me when I read the news outside of the academic space, but, you know, I see like Russian athletes being uninvited from sporting events and Russian musicians being uninvited from different international concerts. And I think certain composers not being allowed to be, you know, expressed in some musical venue. And I mean, it, it sort of gets a little absurd. And I just wonder, you know, is that also happening in the academic space? Are Russian academics being sort of excluded from some of these conversations? And if that's the case, I mean, should it be the case? I mean, how can we sort of live up to that global ideal if, if we might be excluding certain people based on their nationality, regardless of what their government does, right? I agree. It's a very challenging question for people in Ukraine. It's an extremely challenging question. I believe this is a very challenging question for people who live elsewhere in terms of whether on invitations can be a good way to resolve some of these problems. I understand the anger that uh, exists in the very beginning, in the in the beginning of the crisis, when in the time when people observed the atrocities taking place in in Ukraine, and uh, especially when the Russian university rectors expressed their support to these atrocities, that was something that was difficult to comprehend. Uh, was impossible to comprehend because they could say nothing. They could keep quiet as they 
used to do in the past. They would never confront the government in any way. They would never criticize the uh, government. In, in similar situations, suddenly they became, became this very strong patriotic voice, right? So in a way, the, the democratic world responded probably uh, justifiably. Uh, so, in, But in the future, in terms of how that goes with relations in the future, it's, again, when I look Back in the Soviet times, if the government, this fascist regime in, in Russia continues as it is, in the Soviet times, the academics were traveling in pairs or groups and thus will have to snitch uh, on each other and report on each other about who said what and how it might have been disassociating with the governmental propaganda. So, And the informers uh, would also collect intelligence on foreign scholars in efforts to recruit uh, what Lenin was calling as useful idiots for their soft uh, power projects, right? So, And uh, one has to remember that the authoritarian regime sends out their scholars for soft power assignments, otherwise their travels abroad will be regarded as a waste of governmental budget. So, for Western conferences associations that uh, are populated with these delegations, there would be a big question. Do they act as legitimizers of the Russian regime, or would uh, they provoke, would they create some problem for these Russian dissenters who would speak on, on critical issues and then they would risk their own uh, safety? So, in science and technology, in, in science and technology, this might be easier, but we increasingly see that open science had a little period of time when we enjoyed that belief in, in the future of science being borderless. But uh, recently we see this reversal effect in terms of science, again, being mindful of espionage and, uh, and military-industrial uh, secrets and the implications for uh, R&D projects that work for the future technologies. So we, we definitely see that belief that we had in the early 2000s. That belief is, is eroding. And uh, this type of discussion about the futures of Russian scholars as representatives or participants of these projects might be really related to that larger discourse uh, and concern in the global science. Uh, it's such a really interesting point about open science and the ability to understand and evaluate if a scientist is a basically the voice of the state. And that is probably a really, really difficult thing to uncover. Any, you know, I mean, it would be really hard to figure out and in certain countries, I'm sure, even more so. So what do you think, you know, this, we're talking on April 22nd, you know, what is the future here in, in your mind? How do you see this playing out? How do you see this war potentially ending? Ukrainians believe in their victory. They refuse to accept any of those uh, suggestions by some Western intellectuals about concessions. That's been Ukrainian history for quite a long time. Ukrainians were always resistant they they were always uh, anti-imperial. Now their futures is pretty much about building solidarity with the rest of the world in terms of how they decolonize the discourse and practice and contribute to deconstructing those center peripheries that we have seen being developed in the in the discourse as as a hierarchical normal. And uh, some of these scientists were urging us to comply with that type of normalcy of all these center peripheral relations for scholars of Ukraine as many other scholars in 
were on the periphery before, they would definitely have to flatten that uh, imperial knowledge empires, as uh, Philip Oldbach called, called them before, so they would need to break those types of hierarchies and open the borders for, for more discussion, uh, critical inquiry, and so on. But uh, I'm sorry, I can't answer the, this larger kind of geopolitical question about how the war may end. This is difficult to say. I hope that Ukraine wins and the democratic world wins as well. Well, Anatoly Alexienko, thank you so much for joining Freshhead. I hope you and your family and your friends and all your colleagues can stay safe during this really tragic moment in Ukraine. Thank you. Anatoly Alexienko is an associate professor at the University of Hong Kong. His latest article is Ukrainian Academics in the Times of War. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshheadpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Freshhead are solely those of the host or the guest interview, not Freshhead, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Freshhead's team includes Sherry Yang, Fatih Aktas, Obafemi Ungunle, Dion Jiang, Annabella Afroboteng, Anya Lin, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements, and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, the ShockDev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.